Welcome to Living With, a podcast by Health Union that explores what it's like to live with a chronic health condition. Health Union integrates the power of human connection and technology, uniting people in the shared experiences of life with chronic health conditions. I'm Emily Downward. If you were to pass Kelly Mack on the street, you might not notice her. As she has said, she often struggles with being seemingly invisible. Kelly is a petite woman who zooms around on what she describes as a hot rod wheelchair. And while that might be what you see or choose not to see, she is so much more than just a person with a disability. It's worth taking the time to get to know Kelly as her relentless positivity and optimism while coping with a lifelong chronic and often painful condition are quite inspiring. I am Kelly Mack, and I'm a part of the rheumatoidarthritis.net community. So you were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis at age two. Yes. I I didn't know children could be diagnosed so young. Yes. I think I might be the youngest person that I know of. Um, I've heard uh, four. I've heard teenagers. I've heard between, but um, I don't think I've ever met any other patient who was diagnosed as young as, as I was. Wow. What what symptoms were you having that led to that diagnosis? So I think it was around age one when I was walking and my left knee was just swelling up huge. And my parents were like, this doesn't seem normal. And uh, took me to a bunch of doctors. And one doctor said I was uh, behaving this way because my grandmother had broken her hip and I was trying to get attention. And uh, we quickly did, uh, you know, went to a different doctor because he was an understanding that I couldn't imagine myself into having a big swollen knee um so and it took about a year for my diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis we finally found a pediatrician who just took one look at me and said boy this young girl is just really ill and we need to figure it out wow so when did you get your wheelchair and what was that experience like for you sure so i had a really aggressive uh, disease, even from my first symptoms. I mean, I started with one joint, my left knee, and it quickly spread to other joints. And uh, once I got diagnosed, you know, they were trying to treat me and I was in um, physical therapy from a young age and all that. But at that time, I mean, I was diagnosed in 1979. There really weren't effective treatments. Mm. So my disease was both aggressive and not being treated because there weren't treatments as as well as it might have been in this day and age. And so I had a lot of damage even as a young age. And when I was about 10, I had a very severe flare. And uh, I grew up in a place where the weather was really cold in the winter. And I had a really bad flare such that I couldn't really walk or, like, get out of bed. And I remember my mother having to carry me to the 
um, bathroom in the morning to help me get ready. And I mean, I just really like one day just very quickly lost abilities and it got the flare improved. Um, you know, we, we, I think I had like tons of prednisone and steroid injections. It did improve, but my walking just was really challenging and exhausting. And so uh, I got my first manual wheelchair at, at age 10. And it was really just for, um, at that time, kind of school and longer distances. Like I would still walk around the house and things like that. But from there, I gradually needed more and more mobility support just because I wanted, you know, to be able to go to school. I wasn't going to be able to get from class to class without some help. Yeah. Was it, was it hard to be at school with other kids that didn't have challenges? I would say yes and no. I mean, I was different. Um, and I guess I, I always think of it as I was unique. There was not many other kids who had my level of disability. I can think one or two, um, but we were in different classes. Mm. So, you know, I was really sort of unique in my needs, but I also felt like I was pretty well embraced by my classmates. I had friends who would, you know, vie to push me from class to class because it was like a fun thing to do <laughs> so that's so that was really cute <laughs> yeah so that you know I I'm thinking back and I was lucky because I don't remember being bullied or mistreated I think sometimes I felt not included but I think a lot of that was accessibility or people not knowing how to include me I don't think it was um you know, for a lack of heart or kindness. Yeah. I I read on rheumatoidarthritis.net that you had both hips and knees replaced at age 15. Yes. I, yeah. I just had one hip replacement last year, and it. I know the rehabilitation is extensive, so how did you cope with that as a teenager? Oh, wow. That was quite a year. The You know, it's funny because what is the saying, you know, we make, plans and God laughs. Yeah. And um, so by by my, you know, kind of 13, 14, I needed a wheelchair a lot more. But it was also I had really bad pain in those joints. And, you know, my family and I knew that I wanted to be able to go to college and live independently. And we were really afraid that if I didn't have some sort of surgical intervention, that I wouldn't be able to be as independent as I wanted to be. And so part of it was future planning. And part of it was Kelly can't sleep at night because she's in such pain. Mm -hmm. And um, so we made these plans. We said, okay, so your worst joints right now are your hips. So we're going to have those replaced. And, you know, this was all a discussion. I was part of the decision-making. It wasn't, you know, people telling me what to do, even though I was pretty young. And the following year, I was supposed to have my knees replaced. And the idea was that I would have enough recovery time in between. 
But what happened was, is I went forward, I had my, my hip replacements and they were uh, eight days apart in June, right after school ended. And I was in, you know, the hospital and the rehab and um, working really hard. And I think by the fall, we realized, boy, without functioning knees, I was really stuck in my rehab Mm. and I wasn't getting any further. And so it was sort of a quick decision. Okay, November, you know, you're going to leave school and you're going to, you know, get your knees replaced and we're going to accelerate the plan because we're really worried about you losing abilities when your knees are in such bad shape and you can't complete your rehab. So it was it was a really hard year, and the following summer, I had to have additional surgery on my knees because I had a complication with my knees healing, and um, the rehab was really hard. I was away from home for a long time, and then when I finally got home, you know, I couldn't get upstairs, so we had to rearrange the house. And then the whole next year, really, I was working so hard to rehab. And I had this goal when I graduate high school that I would be able to walk down the little red carpet mm-hmm. and shake my principal's hand and grab that diploma. And it was one of the hardest things I have ever had to do, but I made it. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, I... I think I've always felt since then that pretty much if I really put my mind and effort to something, I can get it done. Wow. That gave me goosebumps. I look back and I sometimes don't even know how I did that. (laughs) Well, I know you've written about pushing yourself and that obviously pushing yourself too much has a rebound effect and causes too much fatigue and pain, but you wrote that if you didn't push yourself, you wouldn't have a life. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel that way. And part of it is, um, pushing myself and part of it's kind of pushing on the, the, what I think of as artificial boundaries and barriers that society places for people with chronic illness and disability. Mm. There's this expectation that we're not going to go out and have lives and work and travel. And I mean, it's fun for me to kind of break down those barriers, but it's also just something I need to do to do the things that I want to do. Well, speaking about travel, I read your article about accessibility anxiety. (laughs) Can you explain what you go through in order to travel? Yeah, so I... I love to travel and my husband does too. And um, so we, we travel a few times a year and it is fun, but also really um, anxiety inducing because I have to plan a lot for accessibility. I, I use a motorized wheelchair most of the time. I need certain, um, you know, accessible things like a hotel room that has enough space for my wheelchair and all that jazz so I do a lot of really advanced planning and research but there's also this whole thing 
I guess, where I'm not sure if it'll work out. <laughs> so, you know, if you go someplace and you forget your toothbrush, you can buy a new toothbrush. <laughs> if you go someplace and they don't have a wheelchair accessible room, like what do I do? Sleep in the hallway? I'm I, you know, I don't I don't know. So um, so as much as I love it, there's also anxiety. And one one challenge that I have had too many times is I need a special kind of cab when I get my cab to the airport. So I need a cab that will have a ramp or a lift where I can roll my wheelchair on because my motorized wheelchair doesn't fold up and it weighs, you know, 250 pounds. So, you know, I've had times where the cab doesn't show up or it's late and I'm rushing to get through the gate. And if you don't know this, when you're a wheelchair user, you get like a full pat down and screening. So it's not like, it's not like me rushing is going to make the process any faster. So it's really, you know, you kind of never know. And I triple check and all that stuff. But I have to say probably every trip, there's some sort of unexpected adventure and, you know, that makes it fun, but also, also a little scary sometimes. Yeah. And quite stressful. Yeah, yeah, it really can be. I, you know, I just like I get up extra early because I'm wondering is the cab going to show up? Are they going to get me on the plane correctly? Are they going to break my wheelchair? Is it going to be okay when I land? There's just a lot of things that could go wrong that I'm always praying don't. Wow. And yeah, a lot of things that you wouldn't think of if you didn't have to deal with it, you just think, oh, yeah, just get to the airport a a little bit earlier. But no, there's a lot more that goes into it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, you know, I think people don't really realize it till they experience it themselves. I I think our society has a belief that once you have a diagnosis, a correct diagnosis, and you get treatment, that most things are kind of quote unquote fixed. But autoimmune conditions like RA aren't like that. Can you describe what your treatment has been like? Sure. So when I was diagnosed at age two, there really weren't treatments. I mean, you know, I had Tylenol for a while, and I'm sure that was, you know, I'm sure my RA was just giggling at it, thinking Tylenol, that's hilarious. Um So for a long time, when I was basically all of my growing up, you know, they knew what my disease was. They knew that it was aggressive. But unfortunately, at that time, the medical options were very limited. There were things that we tried that just didn't work. When I was a teenager, I remember methotrexate becoming available as a treatment. And it was sort of brand new to to us. And we were terrified of it because of the the problems with liver damage and feeling like, is that really a safe thing for a growing, you know, adolescent to be ingesting? And what would the future mean for, if I take that now, what's life going to be like for me in 20 years? Am I going to have liver problems? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was really, when I was growing up, a world of unknowns and 
not really having my disease managed. So I, I kind of think of like the first, you know, 20 years or so as being kind of rampant disease, aggressive attacks on my, on my joints. Um, I'm, I'm lucky that I have the health that I do when I think about it that way. Now, when I was about, you know, 20 years in, that's when the biologics started to come around. And, um, so we started different medications. I was probably like mid twenties, early 30s before really going on anything like that and even then I tried several biologics and maybe they worked a little bit but not really um there was some improvement in some of my inflammation but what really has changed things for me is a newer biologic that I started just over a year ago and um, really quite immediately I noticed the effects. I mean, I think it was like in two weeks, which has never happened to me before. And my inflammation has been in normal range since then. And it's just, it still boggles my mind that that's even possible because the way that my disease has been so aggressive, I just really kind of never thought maybe there would be something that would work for me. Wow. I'm so glad you found something that's giving you some relief. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. And, you know, I'm just thankful for every day that I get with treatment that is helping a little bit. I know, and my doctor reminds me, he says, Kelly, you know, you, you have a lot of damage you will be living with. And I know that, but, um, you know, I think any sort of help is a good thing. Absolutely. And I think that provides hope for those who are still looking for the right treatment too, that, I mean, you've, you persisted for what, nearly 40 years? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very glad that new treatments are still coming out and I would tell other patients, you know, it's, it can be a long journey, but keep, you know, keep exploring and don't necessarily settle for something that's helping a little bit because maybe there is something that would help a lot more. That's good advice. So you talked about that now you're in a motorized wheelchair. And I know you recently wrote an article that resonated with the community about being invisible or alternately being too visible. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, yeah. So when I, I will tell you, I drive a hot rod. (laughs) So I have a a red motorized wheelchair and I love going at top speed. It is a joy. (laughs) It's, um, 
it's great because it helps me to get around and do the things that I need and want to do. But, um, you know, it's also fun. You know, people, people look at a wheelchair sometimes and think, oh, you know, what a terrible burden to have. And then I'm like, I'm like hey, I can go faster than you. So <laughs> I don't feel burdened. <laughs> um, but I definitely am very visible, right? I'm in this, like, you know, sizable vehicle, I guess you could call it, and it's red, and, um, you know, people see me coming, and uh, hear me coming, too, (laughs) so it's sometimes, you know, I definitely stand out, and I've always actually, probably from a pretty young age, have stood out, because my, um, my disease is pretty visible, I have contractions, and um, I have, you know, kind of the I guess you'd call it maybe the steroid kind of typical attributes with a round face and things because I've been on prednisone for such a long time. So, you know, even even as a young person, it was pretty obvious that I had some sort of illness or disability. And so I really feel for the people who have an invisible RA, yet it's really present in their lives and affecting them and they feel either um, that people don't believe them or that they have to explain. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have to worry about that because people can really see my disease. Mm. On the other hand, you know, sometimes I wish they couldn't see my disease all the time. And, um, you know, so it's, it's like you can't, you can't really win. <laughs> um, you're either invisible and it's difficult or you're very visible and it's difficult. And, you know, I think we all as patients can support each other, hopefully through those kinds of challenges, because we don't have a choice. It's just, it's just how we experience the disease. Yeah. I, I had to because before my hip surgery, I was in bad shape for a while and I had to use a motorized wheelchair at a conference that I went to because it was just a huge conference and there's no way I could have walked around. And so I just had a very short experience of some of what you've written about, but I was amazed and appalled by the dirty looks I got and the people cutting me off or mm-hmm. hurrying to shut the elevator doors. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, I'm. So, it was it's I'm stunning. So sorry. But you, well, I I know you've experienced that because you've written about that as well. Yeah, yeah. I I'm not sure where where it comes from, except maybe sort of some sort of innate fear or you know, not being comfortable with different people or not being exposed to people with different disabilities. But I've definitely seen all of those things. And um, it's quite shocking. And then sometimes I just get too used to it. And I'll be out with my husband and he'll be like, that person spoke to me instead of you. And wasn't that weird? Or that person was staring at you and wasn't that weird. And, um, you know, I kind of wake up again and I, and I notice it again. But it, it's funny because I just, just visiting with my parents and I was talking about 
motoring someplace in my wheelchair. And my mother said, oh, sometimes I get so nervous for you because of, you know, how you're driving on the streets and crossing and, you know, all these things. And she said, you know, you go fast, you drive aggressively. I like to say assertively. Um, <laughs> and basically it's because if I didn't, I don't think I would get anywhere because people do stop and cut me off or don't let me on the ramp or don't let me on the elevator. And if I did not put myself out there and make myself known that I am going where I need to go and you can, you know, be another person who helps and cooperates and we share the sidewalk or not, you know, that's your choice. I like that you also wrote that you sometimes yell out, hey, I'm a person here. Yes, yes. I do that more often than than I would like. <laughs> but I hope it makes people wake up. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and see beyond what they're ignoring, first of all, and see beyond the, the hot rod red wheelchair. <laughs> but see that you are a person, and, yeah, we all deserve to be treated as such. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like to hope I... I see other people and that we're all people trying to get through our day. Absolutely. And that's all I want and that's all you want. And let's let's try to do it and help each other. Yes, absolutely. And so that leads me to my next question. How do you stay so positive through all the constant struggles of living with RA? You know... Sometimes I wonder about that, too. <laughs> and I do have my bad days and my crabby days. But I think... I think it's... One thing is having it be a part of all of the life that I remember. So I don't remember a time before diagnosis. Mm. So this has always been kind of my day-to-day... I always just felt like, you know, everyone's got their struggles. I'm a kid with RA. I'm an adult with RA. I'm growing older with RA. And I just want to make the best of it. And the only way I can do that is just to be happy. And the only person who can, you know, do that for me is me. So I've just got to decide hey, you know, am I going to be happy and enjoy, you know, the great things in my life that I have? Well, yeah. Yeah, it is It is a daily choice, though, isn't it? It really is. And it's not always, it's not always an easy choice. And I think it's important, too, what you said is, like, some days just are bad, right? And it's, I know for me, I have to let allow myself to just be like, yeah, today is just a bad day. Yeah. And, you know, not to, not to dwell on it, but just to accept that, you know, hopefully tomorrow will be better. Today may suck, (laughs) but hopefully tomorrow will be better. 
So what has it been like for you to be a part of rheumatoidarthritis.net? I love the community. I've been a part of it for, I think, about six years now. And growing up, I really didn't know other patients. I was in a rural area. You know, there wasn't internet then. It was just, you know me and my family and my doctor trying to figure things out. And so finding a community of other people who are experiencing things together and sharing, it's just life-changing. It's wonderful to be able to share what I've experienced and hopefully help other people, but it's also just great to have a connection and to know It's not just me, you know. Other people have these struggles, and we can support each other through them. We are so glad that you're part of our community, and thank you for taking time to share your story with me today. Thank you so much. It was great to chat with you, Emily. To read Kelly's articles and join the conversation, visit rheumatoidarthritis.net. You can find more health communities for people living with chronic conditions at health-union.com. Thank you for listening to Living With. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And consider leaving a review, as reviews help other people find it as well. Thank you for listening to Living With. I'm Emily Downward.